budget. That's probably a word everyone has heard far more than they would have liked this academic year. <laughs> I know I have. Of course, focusing on how to grow that budget is important. But what about retaining the budget you currently have? At no cost to schools, our partners at GradGuard have helped both students and campuses throughout the country protect their money from unexpected damages with the College Renters Protection Plan. Check out what families and school partners have had to say about GradGuard by visiting their YouTube channel or gradguard.com backslash higher ed. Welcome to season four of The Meeting After The Meeting with your co-hosts, LaFerrin, Antonio, Kiana, Abby, Brian, Curtis, and David. Now, let's start the show. Hey, friends. Hey, people. What's what? going on? Hey, boo. Hey. Hello, hello. How y'all feeling, man? I'm so happy yeah. to see y'all. You know, it's been a week. When I see y'all, my week gets better. Aww. It doesn't sound like it, but I am super excited to see y'all. <laughs> I'm just tired. That's all. But you look good. But you I look mean, you know, we out here trying to make something happen. Listen, like LaFerrin said, I'm trying to get chosen. You trying to get chosen? Come on now, because we all receive the applicants. We are receiving applications Listen. and reviewing candidates. You already had that thigh meat out already. So I mean, then there's no that. Then there's that. I'm telling we you, are in cu- we are in cuffing season. Okay, we are in cuffing the calendar. Season. Okay, officially this- opened. Are we in the mm-hmm. application phase? We are in the application phase. Well, we got to come on through because winter time coming. Winter soon. is coming. Right. Start gearing up for the on-campus interview so you can lock down your final selections. Your final selections. And then there's that. <laughs> get you a piece before, before you be left is. out. Or get pieces. <laughs> or pieces. Listen. You know, everybody this will be here. Listen. Look. You got, got look. You got Let the, me tell you something. Let me tell y'all listen. better stop talking good to me today. You know, there's a difference between a plus one and I just need one. You know, it's just uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> and you know she what? Look, she didn't close the door already. Look, we, and we still in the check-in. We, we in the check-in. We in the check-in. We adults you know here, okay? Talk. Listen, y'all got me up here already. Look, this is too much. Okay, so how about these red flags y'all seen covering the internet the last week? What, what y'all think about that? Child, them red flags ain't gonna mean nothing when folks out here taking applications because they trying to be a couple Folks who see red flags and think it's an amusement park like Six Flags, honey, because really and truly the red flags are not stopping a person. Well, can we yeah. can we go back for a second? Not to cut you off, Tiffany, but can we go back for a second? Because where did this whole thing start? It was a Twitter thing, right? Like it started on Twitter and it migrated over to Facebook. The rest of the platform. Where did it come from? Do we know how it started on Twitter? This is actually the second red flag incident we've seen that's come across the socials. Oh, take so, us back. So it came, uh, ugh, it may have been a year ago. You know, you know, time is so relative right now in this panini. So I can't quite pinpoint it, but it did happen before. So I think I, when I saw it, it was on the shade room. That's how I saw it the first time. And then I was like, oh, we back. We back at the red flags. But the way that we have gone in with the red flags and uh, Mama Dion Warwick, 
Twitter. Listen, between she gave the two. Me, I, I had to send that to y'all earlier today. So for those, if, if you need some joy in your life, go follow Dionne Warwick. I don't follow her, but every once in a while, Twitter gets it right on suggestions of things I need to see. And so she came for Hulu, y'all. She paying for the Hulu and she said, I, why am I paying for um, to not have ads and commercials? But yet I still see the commercial and it just went up from there. And she the folks are going up. She need a refund. Give her her, give her, her uh, ad free uh, reviewing. So she's trying to watch Queens because that aired and, you know, the new seasons of everything without the commercials. She want to go right into the next episode, the next scene. When I tell you she gathered Burger King and asked them why they're selling mozzarella sticks, I could not contain myself. <laughs> Listen, you know, you know, you know, you know, Mother Warwick has to do something to keep herself entertained. She Please. ain't too far from the glory and the horn, so she got to get it in before now. Was that something when a fan, a fan asked her if he would, if she would buy him like an Xbox or something? Um, and she replied back and was like, no. <laughs> that is a lot. Dion Ward. Is Dion Ward a red flag? No. 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 Let's, let's, no. Did I ask a question? Are we puzzled? I mean, we're not puzzled. Now, I will say this. When her and Aloe Black had that little song together and they did that performance on Good Morning America, flag on the field there. I mean, I, I, really- can, I, I can do you one better. When she was on that, um, that versus battle, with um, <laughs> uh, Patty LaBelle and Gladys Knight, it came out. Look at the mix. They brought her out of the honorable mix. They brought her out of the honorable But here's the other part of this: she she's been a red food. flag, but she's been a red flag until, since when she was trying to do the psychic network. Y'all, knew, you don't, you oh, can't trust. Take, her. Us well, take us back. Take us back. That is true. That is true. Y'all was trying to get some, get some advice. She needed to be taking some advice on her own. Listen, I can, see Dion, I can see Dion. I can see sitting in a dark room giving y'all yeah. this advice, smoking a Virginia Slim. Baby, telling you, you going to be married in five years and taking puffs. Was it her psychic friends? I th- was she really giving the advice? I thought it was her and her psychic friends network. That well, I, just was I, in I the network called, with people. I didn't ever mean, call them. If she was psychic I, enough, she would have seen where her career was going to go. <laughs> <laughs> My friend, take me out. Take me. Take me out. I'm not going to get up under this deck. I just... <laughs> Down. I melted. <laughs> y'all done let Dion Ward have it today. She y'all done let that woman have it. Where is Patty LaBelle? What do you mean? <laughs> you know, okay. okay. Oh my goodness. That is funny to me. So I, I feel like we have chopped it up that Dion is a red flag. Yes. Okay. She's a legend. So I'm a I'm not I'm a I'm gonna reserve my judgment. Legends can have red flags. This is now, true. Do we need to name the other people that got red flags? Come on through. Come on. Come on through. Come on through. I mean, I don't have any offhand. Felicia Rashad. Right. Ooh. Ooh. Wait child. a minute. Wait a minute. And Wait I love minute. Claire oh. Hanks to the day I die. Amazing woman. But she walked a fine line after that verdict came out. And we, it kind of glossed over. 
but she's on list. We could go down the list. There's Ooh. a few, but she's one Spring of them. Team like, out here. See, y'all are here for it today. Let's showing up strong. Okay. Well, I mean, listen, listen, if listen. I didn't have this good fade and I had a little bit more edges, they might have been snatched. <laughs> Protect your edges, sis. Y'all don't come Protect for me on the socials. I love Felicia Rashad, but she's well, I mean, line. you know, it Ooh, is what it is. Another red flag. This wasn't on the docket, but Howard University's housing department. Ooh. That's a red flag. We're not talking about it. We just gonna keep them lifted. We gonna keep them lifted. We are not gonna talk about it because it could be it's them today, but it could be any one of us tomorrow. Oh, let me tell you something Absolutely. right now. I, I tell you today, <laughs> it won't be me. It won't, it, it, it won't be me it either. It won't be me. Before, because before we let my residence halls get like that, I'm going to be out. That part. You ain't finna have me on Channel 7 News talking about why there's mold in the building and a leak in the ceiling and my son still living here. Absolutely not. And the students over there wading in the water. It ain't about to happen. They done uh, made a tent city outside on the quad. I, I have seen... <laughs> <laughs> Just so y'all know. <laughs> I have seen many a dangerous residence halls, and I think it's just by the grace that that ain't been the story. So, right. um, and which, in in all honesty, you know, residence hall had issues and problems, right? And so we all work in most of us in our housing, and we have, you know, weathered the storms and worked with our campus maintenance and facilities teams to make sure that our residence halls are safe and comfortable and attractive and presentable. But to get to the point where we got mold growing on furniture and, and things of that nature, like that, that takes, in my opinion, years of no. neglect. Well, not necessarily no. years, but some neglect. But neglect. Some neglect. Some, neglect. neglect. some neglect. And I will say, because I did my capstone um, on environmental operations, so I have seen how fast mold can grow um, and can recognize that beyond just the Chicago air bride. <laughs> absolutely so of of that depending on the conditions in the building true true you know could expedite the speed of 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 some of what is being shown absolutely how the building was built infrastructure right. things so of that we nature. got a steam situation the temperature right. in the space like and and we know this too one of the things that and let's talk about this from an equity space that does not serve our buildings well when we try to be open 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, we don't give our buildings time to be cleaned. Uh, when you got students continuously living in the spaces and, you know, some there we used to be when I, when uh, in some institutions would send in a cleaning crew. Right. Every every two weeks just to make sure because some of these students are nasty. OK, absolutely. Absolutely. Nasty. And just to make sure that they were cleaning, you know, they had to send in a professional crew. But I am definitely sending my heart out to, to Howard. I think what we know behind the scenes is that I think maybe some of the targeting is misplaced, but the, but the university is definitely trying, but I don't right. think that they have done the best job in, in helping the students to navigate this publicly, mm-hmm. at least from what, from what is being seen. I'm glad to know that there are meetings happening behind. But Howard, y'all are in our prayers, yes. friends. Because we all have been, we have all had interactions with media, right? And they are trying to get ratings and all the things. And when you don't get to take control of the narrative, 
the story is portrayed as it's portrayed, right? Absolutely. And so we know that there's two sides to every story and every situation and that what we talking about, you know, because folks are like, oh, Lord, the whole campus is broken and mold and mushrooms on root on the ceilings and everything everywhere. You know, we know that there's more there's more to it. But because the nature of what it is, it we're not going to hear that other side. And nor is it for us to hear that other side, you know. Absolutely. But I, let's I, that, I let do. that be us. Let's that be us. Exactly. And, and working. And working in the state, like working in Florida, honey, going from one day to the next, actually one hour to the next, you'd be like, what just happened here? Mm -hmm. Where am I? But it is a wake up call, right? Absolutely. That that you need to invest in your facilities. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you you, need to. And that deferred maintenance. maintenance. And that's everybody. Right. Right. if, If that is not a part of your continual budget plan, then that is something that you need to look at. Because of course, where you put your money shows where you va- what you value. Absolutely. And, and here's the other thing, right? When, when the university does not own the facility and it's managed by a partner and, the, and a part of your agreement, that partner is controlling maintenance, but the university is on the hook for the spotlight of it all, right? The mm-hmm. front facing part. That's something that's difficult to understand, right? That when the university may be standing behind the scenes, like, yo, y'all, we really don't control this. That ain't how the deal goes down, but... Is is Howard's housing all P3? That's or, what I've know? heard. That I, I have heard that. I don't know all the details, but that is sure. what I heard that that, that Howard's uh, housing is owned by a partner. And so I can tell you, all of y'all know this already. If if the partner is doing the maintenance and that's not a part of their plan, mm-hmm. this going to drag out for a while. Yeah. And that ain't what no student or parent wants to hear, but that's how the and, contract is dealt. Right. Right. And another piece of this too is, and we, we all know that, you know, during COVID, a lot of people had to cut corners financially, like some significant corners. So with this, a lot of institutions say, you know what, because we know we need the same sort of coin, let's go ahead and cut back on this maintenance, this housekeeping. We're going to go ahead and, you know, th- the utilities will be okay. The water's still going to be running. Like, we're going to be good for a minute until we have to rev back up. <clears throat> Fast forward 18 months, we see these institutions having these issues popping up because they didn't take care of the infrastructure, knowing that students were eventually going to come back. And it's, right. it's biting a lot of institutions. But so the reality is, and it's, <clears throat> it's tying into a lot of what you all just said, we have to continue to, 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 to oversee our infrastructure, even when times slow up, because the pipes, the the, 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 you know, all of those things that students use on a daily basis, you just can't turn it on and they'd be back at 100%. And a lot of institutions are feeling that, that pinch right now because they didn't take care of what, 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 what gives them their bread. And what was deferred before COVID? Another question. What was deferred? Because defer- only deferment means for right now, we're not dealing with it. It didn't go away. Nope. Look at your student loans. When you went into deferment, they were still there when you came back to them. It was just a little bit more of them, depending on the interest. See, same concept here. Mm-hmm. Those issues that were there, tack on 18 months, and, and now we got some big, some big ish. So absolutely. And Joe Biden, we still waiting for you to cancel student loans if that's what you're going to do. That part. That um, part. Come on through, <laughs> sir. Come on through. Because we don't want to put a red flag on you, brother. But we will if needed. They they might be slowly starting to accumulate. 
That we, we, we shall see. <laughs> We got um one of our favorites here today, y'all. Okay. And then there's that. Wah, okay. Wah, wah. okay. One of our biggest supporters, Tiffany Bromfield, is here, y'all, to join us in conversation today as we move and talk about Generation Z in college right now, things we've seen, trends challenges, surprises, all of the things. Tiffany, how you doing, friend? Hello. Hey, I'm happy to be here. Excited to be with the people. You all know I'm an avid listener. Every Monday, I get my notification 8 a.m. Boop. The meeting after the meeting is uploaded. I get to my office, log in and do my COVID-19 tracker from a university. Then I pop on the podcast and take in my words of wisdom, share the things with my staff and continue to promote the mission. So I'm happy to be here and I'm excited to be talking about this um, very new experience in a COVID-19 world with students who don't know how to talk to anybody. Ooh. Well, we're, well, we going all the way in. Well, we, we, ain't even, we ain't even. The door, the door, the door closed. Listen, my little mentee then kicked the door open and slammed it behind her. We, we are here. So, so let's let's talk about it just so that folks know who the Gen Z uh, population is. Just some few facts so that we all start on the same page. We're pulling research from the Pew Center Research Center because you know we got you got to have your data right. We're all starting on the same data point, okay? And so Pew says that uh, millennials um, are 1981 to 1996, and 1996 to 2012 would be your Generation Z. Generation Z right now, the oldest of them are around 23 years old. And it should be the, the most of the traditional age college population right now. Some of them are just starting to graduate from college out of that population. This is also the No Child Left Behind. Y'all remember No Child Left Behind from George Absolutely. Bush? That left everybody a child behind? Uh, <laughs> while we're playing part, with it. That part. Okay. Uh, this And, and what that really means is standardized testing, everybody. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. all they have known. Uh, their entire life is standardized testing. So you think about that in your state where you've been, the challenges and the successes of that, and also its impact on teachers, right? Because teachers had to qualify during No Child Left Behind that they were competent to teach that subject. Um, and what impacts that may have had on districts that had resources and those that may be cash strapped or resource strapped. Y'all, let's talk about it. Uh, uh, talk about Gen Z. What do y'all, what have y'all seen out is of this, this population? The, is this the iPhone generation? Like in terms of they've never been without, you know, Correct. smartphones and tablets and iPads and Correct. all the gadgets and gizmos, right? And so, you know, I was thinking about reading over the the, the the topic for today and thinking about what I see in my college students. And that's the first thing that came to mind. This is a generation that did not go outside and play hide and go seek and did not go into the woods like most of us country folk did, you know, when we were younger. I, well, listen, I'm from South Carolina. I'm from the country, and we played in the woods and did all the things up and down the street, and it had to be inside when the lights came on, right? Uh, this population 
you know, probably didn't even go outside as much. I would assume with all the gadgets and gizmos. And so I think what I'm seeing and how that is manifesting itself when I think about my college students is that their communication is not there um, in terms of being able to properly communicate. And I'll use the example of roommates. I'm seeing roommate conflicts where it's just I want to move, not where I want to compromise and communicate my feelings and thoughts and hear your communicate your your feelings and thoughts. And we kind of come to some resolve in that. This is a generation that I don't like you. You don't like me. We move in. Have a good day. Bye. And I feel like part of that is due to the fact that they haven't spent a good amount of time around other individuals to learn the core competencies and people competencies and skills um, needed to have those conversations. And I will say within that, this is also the, um, we are beyond helicopter parents now. This is what I call the bulldozer parents generation because these are the everybody gets a trophy kids. So like if their kid is not on the same as everybody else, if they feel like their child's not getting treated the same, like these parents, they skip the entry-level staff, they skip the mid-level staff, they skip the dean of students, and the president gets an email because the roommates had a disagreement and somebody took somebody's cheese. And then it goes down the line, so then it gets to my desk, and my supervisor's like, hey, can you handle this? And then you go talk to the students, and you're like, oh, she took my cheese. Do you want her to give you the money back? Do you want the cheese back? Like, right. what's right. the resolution? Like, yeah. So I, I think that's the, that's the other piece of, I think, with Gen Z, too, and there's so many things that like historically shaped us that they don't remember. Like our incoming freshmen don't know what 9-11, like 9-11 has very little significance to them outside of like a history lesson that they got. At sure. School. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And COVID did not help. Yeah. And I think the other piece of this conversation is that it's not just our students, it's our professionals too. So we've had conversations about different generations in the workspace. But you're talking about folks who are supervising people who they share innate characteristics with around confronting conflict. And when you do the work and you're in housing and you're like, I need you to actually confront or have or help students with mediation, or I need you to do this, but you are also conflict adverse and you're, and I'm like, but no, this is actually the job. Like, I actually need you to do that. And so that is the interesting part, right? And so and being where we are, and we've talked about this too, like where we sit in this generational soup, we're managing all of that. And the people before us who are like, I, I don't understand what the problem is. I Absolutely. And you're like, pause, <laughs> there's some things that we need to talk through um, and all that. So I think it's just, it's a combination of things. And our students, even though, because we did some assessment, they want connection and they want community. These last two years have made that look very interesting. So they've seen a lot of people via, you know, screens and all of that, which exacerbates this idea of having the phone in your hand all the time anyway, or just that constant connection this way versus how do I make those connections outside of a virtual space? So that's become our thing too, even though they want it, they don't know how to do it. And that part is very interesting as well. And like even some of our students, they, they, they want virtual options for classes, but they want to see their friends in person, whoever their friends may be. And so it's, it's just it's weird. And having to manage all that sometimes I'm like, y'all, I'm just tired. I'm no, just I mean, I 100 percent agree with all of that. It's funny, fair you brought that up in terms of the generational soup um, concept that you talked about, because 
me and my supervisors had this conversation, the same conversation about my generation and the role that I sit in within the department, where he sits at in his generation, then my staff's generation. And I and I had to just lay it out like if not Brian, if Brian wasn't here, but if someone from my generation was not in the seat, you could not manage what I deal with within my staff. To Tiffany's point, this is the this is the generation that played Little League football. And when they lost the championship, they still got a trophy. And so how that manifested within my team and the people that I work with is that what am I getting out of it? What are you giving me to do extra work? What are you giving me to do the extra things? Do I get paid more? Are you giving me a prize? Do I get more or something? Uh, versus I feel like in our generation, probably above, it was, okay, you know, especially the task is not too daunting, right? Like we're not asking you to create a whole new platform and program. Obviously that's different than, hey, can you serve on a panel to for Title IX and, and talk through your experience, right? And so I see that, but I also don't want to heart on just the negatives about the generation because there are some positives um, in some ways, right? And I feel like some folks might see this as a negative, but this is the burn it down generation and start it over. And they are very vocal about the um, differences and the indiscrepancies and all of the things that they find wrong with professions and people. They are going to be activists. They are marching. We just talked about Howard. These students want change and they want it now. And they're utilizing tools and resources from the past that we've seen and using that to their advantage. And, and I appreciate them for being vocal about the things they want and the change they want to see. This generation redefined immediate gratification significantly. And I think also this generation redefined what it means to be resilient significantly. And, and when we think about our staff teams, when we think about the folks who we've hired from this generation, we have to, as, as, as leaders, recognize that what they need and what we're used to seeing when it comes to an entry-level timeline doesn't always apply to this group. Because what usually would take a year or two when we talk about competency development, awareness of role responsibility, understanding who they are individually and how their interests and passions connect with the work, that timeline has sped up because we know that in this generation, when they see things, when they are expecting things based off of their lived experiences and how they are very aspirational, entrepreneurial at heart, very activist driven, they want to see things happen fast. And, you know, as we want them to develop specific competencies and even just, you know, develop awarenesses about themselves, that timeline don't work with the work that we do, especially with the students that we serve in the realm in which we, we function. So um, as much as, you know, we, and, and, I, and I champion the spirit, but at the same time, there's a natural conflict there that we have to be aware of as leaders in our organizations when it comes to us ensuring that, when we are student-centered, when we are committed to our folks growing, we, we have to make those adjustments to ensure that these folks are being successful. Or we're going to see that carousel turnaround when it comes to employment because what they don't like, they're going to make a change. And it's going to impact the, 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 our bottom lines when it comes to you know vacancies that we got to fill to get the right people in to do this work. Curtis, you, you hit it on the head because this is the generation now that you know oldest are 23. They are coming into the job market. And I, I'm going to stretch here. This is the generation King was waiting on. 
right, where there's no one leader. There's no one leader, but they are not waiting on change. And what does that look like when you get into a job market, when you're talking about incremental change? And they're like, no, we want these benefits tomorrow. Y'all ain't got them today. Well, I'm out the door, you know. And so I think about that in two capacities. What does that mean for them individually? And what does that mean for these organizations as well? Like, do we we might need to do recruiting whole differently, right? You know, we're we're talking, you know, the great resignation. Now, all of the things we fought for or had high ideals for, they are like, yo, we want all of that today. Not tomorrow. We want all of that things that you've been talking about today. Where where are we with that? And, and when I don't get it, I'm leaving. And so to your point about recruitment and recruiting from that perspective, we're going to see a lot more of that because people are, you don't give it to me right now. Okay. I want to the next where I think our generation above us, we, we stayed in and, and we had longevity in, in companies and our position and roles. These people are popping in and out. And think about it too. Families aren't teaching resiliency anymore. Just like uh, uh, to, uh, how that like it's beyond helicopter parents at this point. Like if 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 little boo boo you know not feeling good about X Y and Z situation, we're gonna go ahead and change it so that way they feeling good about themselves. So I'm feeling good about myself. We deal with it every day. We're getting phone calls from parents because you know something's happening with my kids' meal plan and da 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 da. And I gotta talk with you about what they done did because they done spent all their flex dollars and now you want to switch. No 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 no. But on the employment line as well, we're dealing with the same things with our staff. Hey, I'm not getting this experience. Oh, I'm not sure about this. Can you like all of these immediate expectations of what their experiences should be from their mindset is changing how they go about experiencing and growing in their roles. And it's putting the pressure on us as mid managers to make adjustments or to push back saying to our new folks, hey, no, you're, you're right where you need to be. We need you to make your adjustments and grow. And because right now the leverage is with this particular generation, they got options and they're, and they're exercising them. But I think too, I also don't, because I'm hearing all of this and one, and I, and I think too, is how they were raised, which lends itself to how they are interacting in these spaces. And whereas I, I, I appreciate their ideas and wanting to challenge like things that, that don't make sense and are right. And we can be doing something new. Like just because we've done it for the same way for the first 30 years does not mean we have to continue doing that way. And if COVID has taught us nothing, it has taught us that we do have to be a little bit more innovative, not a little bit, a lot more innovative in terms of what we're doing. And they represent a brain power that can give us those new ideas. At the same time, this is also, I, I think there's some reality here. So I am also the push, I'm a push back a little bit person on them as well. At minimum, I know you want all these experiences, but can you do what I hired you to do first? Can you do the PD first? Can, can we do that part first? Like that's that's all I'm asking. Can we, can we do that first? Because I want you to have the other experiences. I do. I think you're talented. That's the reason I brought you on. But the other part, you keep hopping and hopping and hopping and hopping. And you're still not getting some of the competencies that you need that will help you if you are trying to burn it all down. Because so you burn it down. Now what? What you going to put in its place? Nothing that's built on foundation or nothing solid foundation that is going to last. That's just my opinion. But what I'm saying is because of this need, because to Curtis's point, if this makes me feel uncomfortable or I don't like it, I'm going to do something else. That is the part that's like life wasn't meant to be comfortable all the time. These things 
challenge you. These things grow you. And it's okay. And I'm not want you to stay somewhere where you are absolutely miserable and people are mistreating you. But you also have to be realistic about your expectations because you're not about to be the CEO, the vice president, executive director of this company tomorrow. And you just got here yesterday. That's not going to happen. And I think there's some realities that people are afraid to have. There's some realistic conversations that people are afraid to have with this generation, which is actually doing them a disservice. So the first thing I was going to say is I think one of the things with Gen Z is the problem solving of things looks a lot different with them because they've had like YouTube and Google and all those things. So for a lot of them, the critical thinking skills aren't always there. And then I think about it in a staff position and for like the listeners, I went from a frontline entry-level role to a mid-mid manager role where I don't just supervise entry-level staff, but I also supervise mid-level staff. And one of the things I've noticed, and I talk to my staff about this all the time, is there's a difference between managing, leading, and supervising. Those are three core pieces to being a mid-manager that a lot of folks struggle with because as mid-managers, we can't differentiate what it means to lead, what it means to supervise, and what it means to manage. And in the same vein, to LaFerrin's point, folks are just not comfortable with confrontation as is, but folks have never been coached on how to have the conversation when things are falling short. Perfect example, I had a... um, a colleague have an issue with something, they had a conversation with the supervisor and then I went to the supervisor and was like, hey, well, did you send a follow-up email to say, hey, this is what we talked about today, et cetera, et cetera. No, I haven't done that. Why haven't you done that? So I think it's the piece of that, that coaching piece sometimes, not just with mid-managers, but particularly with entry-level staff, because we get them in grad school and we teach them all of these theories and all of these things, and then they get to the job and yes, burn it all down. But I think Either Antonio said it on one of the podcasts or Steve said it on one of the podcasts. You could burn everything down when you're not responsible for any of it. Like what you burn down, you have to, people have jobs, we have institutions, we have clientele, we have to, we have stakeholders. You can't just like, yes, burn down, dismantle the system, all those good things. But then what are you left with after the system is burnt down? You know, you can jump from institution to institution and you still take the same habits with you. It doesn't change. I and and this is what I've come to know that this generation is okay with not having that answer. They are they are okay. Absolutely. They are okay with burning it down and they will figure it out once the once the structure is burned down. And I and that's where I want to parse that because I totally agree with LaFerrin, right? Like let's push back. But they're not accepting your pushback. You know, you know, like they're saying, okay, I hear you pushing back, and yes, you want you want to stair step your way, but they're like, I'm gonna leave you over here to stair step your way through that problem. I want the solution today, and while you're trying to figure out your solution, I'm gonna go ahead and hit the exit button and figure out what I'm gonna do next. And I mm-hmm. totally agree that that's not sustainable, but they do not care that it is sustainable, right? That is the that is the difference in perspective. They are not after sustainability because they see these structures. Like we're in the middle of the great resignation when we're talking about we want something different. This generation has all already skipped that, right? They're they're like, I don't even know why y'all even endured that to begin with. I'm not even going to enter into that phase when I experienced discomfort to begin with, buddy, I'm out. And so right. I, I, I don't I don't like what do what what do we collectively do then as organizations, as people with the generation who says I'm not willing to engage you in a space where anything less than what I believe I deserve, I'm just not with it, whether I, whether I got it or not. What do we do then? I think I'm just not, I'm just not for, I'm not for appeasing bad behavior. I'm just not, like, I'm just not. 
And I think it's because I have real talk with my staff. Like, and then and, and when it when we start, I'm like, there's gonna be times when you love me and there's gonna be times when you hate me. And guess what? I can handle both. But I can handle both because I've done this. When people ask me the question, well, how do I get to where you are and do what you do? I did my job. That was the first thing. The second thing is I learned. Sometimes I closed my mouth and I listened to what was happening and I did push back. Like, because I also think too, there's an assumption that our group, like that we didn't shake tables because that's also not true. But we were taught how to shake tables and actually cause change. When you just like, I'm about to set this on fire and I hope you get out before the smoke for real gets you. Like that, that we were taught, that's not how you actually create change right? Because the other part of this too, and I've been telling people this the last couple of weeks, whether you're talking about racism, oppression, if you're at an institution, whether it is a college or a company, those things are in the brick and mortar of those institutions. It was a, it was a part of it when they laid the slab. And if you're like, oh, I work remote, it's in, the, it's in them fibers, them web fibers too. So don't do it, right? So I think we have to be realistic as well because people do think that the grass is green on the other side and that's not always true but I also think too I'm not going to apologize because you're you're uncomfortable I'm not because I'm not going to always be able to create a space where you're going to always have a smile on your face and these graduate programs which I have said before y'all selling folks a pipe dream this is all this is not all rainbow sunshines and unicorns it is not it is work it is frustration at times there is beauty out of it. There's some magnificent things I've been able to experience, but there's also frustration and exhaustion. And these last couple, and these last, not couple, 18 months, it has it has taught us all to put some things into perspective. I don't want to sway the conversation in a different direction, but LaFerrin, you said something and Tiffany, you also said something. And I've been thinking about what you both have kind of said for a while. LaFerrin, you have mentioned grad school a few times in a few podcasts and conversations and what's being taught in grad courses. And then Tiffany, you just mentioned the word theory. And my question is, the theories that we learn in graduate school, and you all know student development theory, are they still applicable to today's college students? Nope, nope, nope. Chickering was 1969. My mother was born in 1969. Absolutely. And she got three grown kids who are all out of college age. And and I'm because I'm being honest, because I think two of the things that we do in our grad program, particularly when we talk about theories, we don't teach identity theory. And we're looking at a country that by 2020, I think they said 2030 is going to be more minority than majority. So we're not teaching 2035. So we're not teaching in identity theory. But I also think, too, one of the weird things about some of the programs, so some programs do this really well where they get practitioners to come in and facilitate classes who are, you know, your director of orientation, your director of assessment at your university department, so they can give, like, real-world experiences. But some of the time, I've looked at faculty at the programs, and I'm like, you should be teaching a PhD class because you should be teaching a researcher. You are teaching master's students PhD-level things, which is great, but then they show up at our offices on the first day talking about they want to use um, Schlossberg's theory of transition with the first year student who has been home for the last year and a half right. online. Right, right. Because right. I, so my supervisor and I just talked about this this week because we're realizing that we're having a huge increase in student misconduct. And I'm just like, we missed the mark in community building. We missed the entire mark. And I don't know that, I don't know that it's just specific to us. 
because I do think bringing the RAs in and then we went back to doing things that the way that we've always done it and that doesn't cut it anymore. Like the way right. we've done RA training and CD training and all those things, we're dealing with a different type of student and our community building for our residents and our clientele, because I call them clients because heads in beds, they pay and we got to make sure they happy. We are missing the mark in getting them to where they need to be to live in groups of people after being online for 18 months where they probably were home with family, whether that situation was safe or not. And now they're living with a stranger on a whole of 23 other strangers. It's like the real world. And that I'm just going to age myself because most of them don't know what that is. Tiffany, you know, you said something and I just had this conversation with my team on Tuesday. We were talking about RA selection and we we're talking about how do we how do we find the right person for the RA role today? You know, we've often talked, and I think, I, and I've said it before, my, in my role at UAB, I get in front of the RAs and say, well, I was an RA and I was a hall director and I stopped. I, I, I stopped saying that because I have not been an RA or a hall director in 2021. And the work that RAs are doing right now and with these students, is very, very different. I remember in my RA role, I don't ever remember dealing with this much mental health crisis in my role as a resident assistant. And I don't know what it's right. And I don't, and I don't know what it's like to do that. And so I think that to your point, Tiffany, we are now having the conversations is our hiring process, the best hiring process to find the right people to be in these positions. What does training look like and how do we make training fit what's happening with our students? Um, and that we're seeing with our students in the residence halls today. And it's funny, it's funny you brought that up because I just had that same conversation on Tuesday. I think you bring up something else too with that part, Brian, in terms of the characteristics of the generation, how it's actually changing and adjusting the role of the professionals in the field and what that means and what are actually the needs, right? So this also is a group who is okay very much saying that they have mental health stressors and they need assistance, which I can appreciate because they have normalized this idea that we need to be mindful of these things, right? We, we knew that, right? But now we know, know that, right? So um, heart goes out to our some friends in my state because I know they have been dealing with some tough things over the last couple of weeks because of mental health. And so what I say that because now, when you think about the professional who's coming in, do we need to change the requirement for the role? So we ask for a master's degree. Awesome. Does the master's degree or program have to have some counseling folk background or focus because of what we're dealing with, right? How do you also, there's also expectations that we're putting on these RAs who, let's also talk about, are also dealing with mental health concerns and issues um, and sometimes forget that the resources that we have shared with them to share with their students are also resources that they too themselves can use. And so I think it's, it's, a, it's a whole lot of things and the position description is gonna have to change as well as the role. And I think also the role of other offices and things on campus and also, which is the hard conversation is that some things may become obsolete. Absolutely. I think LaFerrin, I'll, I'll add to that. This is the Me Too generation. And, and these are the people that are not afraid to come forward and talk about their issues with Title IX related situations and things of that nature. And I mean, at this point, to your point, LaFerrin, and I'll use myself as an example, I feel like I'm more of a case manager than anything. 
Um, you know, I, I I still do the other tenets of my job, but more often than not, I spend most of my day reading reports, making referrals, chatting with my staff about follow-ups and check-ins, getting me updates to update the other people across campus on mental health and wellness crisis and Title IX situations. I think student services is at an inflection point collectively, and it's at a point that it needs innovating how do we innovate now? I mean, what a generation has come and shaken up everything. And Tiffany, I mean, you are closer to the front line than many of us are or were. What are your thoughts there? I do think we all, we talk a lot about collaborative relationships in our field and in this industry and a lot of industries. I don't think we utilize it to the strength that we should. So it seems more like in theory than actual, like in practice. Um, and even with kind of some of the things we've talked about moving forward, not even just our graduate programs, but our entry level staff and how we work with say orientation and admissions and not to say that everyone needs to have a hand in everything, but I do feel like a lot of our campuses are very, very siloed in that. Like I've had a friend who works in orientation and is like, we bring the students here and then we give them to y'all. And I want universities, institutions, and other organizations to stop feeling like housing and residence life is a catch-all for all of the things, because we have a lot of our own other things we need to handle. And I do think also universities in general need to give more resources and investment into our counseling and health centers, because this idea that a student is on campus and we have to... Um, send them off campus to receive services. Like that's not to say that that's the worst thing in the world, but we are already struggling with students feeling mad, feeling mattered and feeling belonging. You know, all the things we talk about, the fuzzy feelings, and then something happens and we have to port them out to, you know, MMC or whatever for six weeks. And then we have our university police department who is just not responding in general to things in manner in which they should, right? Um, so I do think it is a, let's talk about what those collaborative relationships look like on our campuses and how we support the students within that. I was going to jump in with that, Tiffany, not only send them off campus, but also then also tell them to wait two or three weeks for the first appointment because we're so backed up and booked that we can't see them on campus when they need us to see them. So if you all were to share thoughts of words of wisdom about how College universities should be working with this new generation now in an ideal sense. What what does that look like? When we were talking about grad programs and what grad programs are teaching, um, I, I thought I start I thought about my own curriculum in my grad program and I would chop up a grad curriculum at this point, dealing with this generation being four overarching topics, and then you can discuss all things that fall under that. That would be well-being, diversity and inclusion community and student engagement, and organizational management. You start with those four things and then work your way down into the subtopics of those things, you'll be producing some really great people to enter the field in this time, in my opinion. I think you hit it right on the end. I would say we are in a multi-generational workplace and we need to have better or stronger conversations about what that looks like as now we have, I think it's something like five generations represented into or in the workplace, not just higher ed in organizations and all. And I do believe that that affects our ability to be innovative because a lot of our old guard um, folks are just like, well, this is the way I did it when I was an RA. Like when I was an RA, we had kegs. 
at our call programs. And that means everybody came. And it's like, well, we can't have alcohol on campus, so we can't have a keg. So, so what does that look like, right? So I do think that multi-generational conversation around innovation is very, very important. But I also think too, we need to just make sure our systems are communicating with each other. I feel like a lot of institutions I've worked at, we have like six or seven pieces of software that essentially do the exact same thing. But like admissions uses this, orientation uses this, housing uses this, and then student success services use that. And they don't necessarily communicate with each other, which then ends up with students feeling frustrated because it's like, I registered for class, but it didn't flag my financial aid, which then didn't flag my academic advice. So it just makes it a lot harder to deal with. And again, these students are like, well, if y'all not going to try, I'm just going to not come back. I I absolutely agree on that because it's the same concept. Like, for example, I'm at an institution where we are a bifurcated system, but to the student, they, when they have a need, when it comes to housing and residence life, they just go into one person and they see us as one entity, you know? And so they assume that all the systems talk to each other. Well, if this person has this information, then obviously you have access in your office to the same information. So why am I reduplicating that information? Um, because you are the university. So the university knows all these all and is at the should be at the same pace at the same time. I think that when we look at strategic planning and, and bringing folks to the table, that has to be a conversation. But what, and sometimes it is, but the problem is, is that I don't want to, by doing, by compromising or leaning in to us using the same platform, then I'm showing my hand, if you will. And I am letting go of my power, if you will, um, because then who then takes the credit of being the owner of said system, said things, said numbers, because a lot of things are numbers and reports um, and you know, whose oversight, because that can only fall under one particular VP or AVP, you know, and then you get into, we trying to cut the baby in half, (laughs) a kind of argument when it, and then you lose the fact of, but at the end of the day, how do we best help and support the needs of the students? You know, is it that important that you don't, you let this go, like, and you don't get the, you get a shared credit versus the full credit. I think Brian hit it on the head. I think it's twofold, right? So I do think it's how we are educating the professionals for the field. I think that is very important. I think what we're talking about on campus, everybody wants to talk about retention and understanding that critical conversations have to be had about the characteristics of this generation that is coming in so that you can retain them and they will persist and that you can recruit them because that's the other thing too. Our first year classes are getting smaller, not bigger. And so what does that mean, right? And so really understanding trajectory is gonna be important in terms of the environments that we are creating, not only on our campuses, but also just from a business perspective too. Like, and I think that's the part that people miss. Like the number one thing is to understand who your consumer is right? So that you can make sure that whatever product that you are selling, and here's the thing, education is selling, we're selling a product. And we have to be very honest with ourselves about that so that we can move forward and we can survive. Because that's the thing. Right now, we are 
pulling at straws just to survive after this pandemic. And it requires us to stop. Think critically about this. Everybody was worried about retention numbers. This is actually the thing that will help save you is to take a minute and to be critical of our current practices. And also be okay, understand, and I've said this before, that some things just may have to go because they no longer serve purpose. I so appreciate all of what you were saying, LaFran. And I want to take that and kind of, you know, turn to Tiffany. You, you've you moved from the front line to, you know, this mid-manager mid role and you, you were one who were prepared, you know? And so... Uh, when we talk about who our audience is, typically you are the typical person, you know, when we, we know about our statistics, who is ready to move, who who has been trained, who's been doing this work and is moving up. Talk to us a little bit about what your transition has been like, you know, in the last couple of weeks, last couple of months for you. I will say that I am grateful that I took time to be good at my job. So I was a community director, entry-level staff for five years. And I think one of the things that is a disservice to a lot of folks is when, I don't know if it's graduate school that's telling people this or what, but for that, after three years, you're ready to move up. You're not, you're not. Because trading that I for we is a big, that's like the biggest thing that you have to start thinking on. A, and I tell my staff this, like y'all are at a 10,000 foot, like our assistant dean is at a 50,000. I'm hovering right around 30,000. So I'm like making sure that I could support him when he needs things, but also support you all when you need things. But I do think too, one of the things that I learned in my entry level role was to not take things personally. Because I think when you run a community, you're responsible for students, you're very much like they're doing this to us and it's it's about my, and it's like, yes. But now I'm in a mid-level role where all 18 or 2000 students on this campus are my students. That includes the upperclassmen who live in the apartments that don't clean or the first year students who don't take out the trash. You know, it really, I'm very grateful that I was in a department that allowed me to fall without failing. And I tell my staff that a lot, like it is okay to fall, but I'm not gonna let you fail. Cause you have to kind of have those experiences to learn, but I also learn to be quiet and like, listen to not just my supervisor, but my colleagues and, I didn't think I was ready to supervise folks until I looked around on my team and I was like, all the things that I've experienced with y'all, I feel like if I was your supervisor, I could handle. And that took me five years. I mean, granted, COVID was a year. Um, but even then, during COVID, so I was in Texas when we had a snowstorm and I was the responding person on call. The So when the phone rang, I'm like, all right. Let me get to people. Listen, we got 30 minutes. Get in your group meets. Tell your staff this. Pull your emergency keys. And I found myself like, okay, you know how to handle a real life emergency when things are going on because you are the person that people are calling. Um, so I do think taking good, taking the time to be good at my job, but also now because I'm at this level, like I look at budgets differently. I look at occupancy differently. I look at traveling and conferencing very differently. Um, because it's not just about your involvement, but it's always gonna be about the quality of your work, just in general. And going from entry level to mid-level, like I've heard my staff say stuff and I have to like go like scratch my head and be like, was I like this in my entry level role? Did I say things like this? Um, yes, and I probably yes, yes, you did. We <laughs> all I, have had that moment. 
Well, I was like, probably, that's why I looked at you. I was like, probably a little bit, maybe. Yeah. So I, I do think for the listeners, if you find yourself at a point where you think you want to ascend, not just in housing, but in general, I would encourage you to look around your team, look at your colleagues, the people who are on your level. And if you can't wholeheartedly say, if I was their supervisor, I could handle some of these issues, you're not ready. And I think that's an interesting piece because, and, and Curtis, who's on the call, Curtis and Antonio were the first two people. I remember Antonio and I were having dinner in Atlanta in 2017. And Antonio asked me if I'd ever fired anyone. And I was like, I have. He's like, you're ready. And at that point, I still don't think I was ready. And it wasn't until last year, Curtis was like, you're ready. And I was like, you know something? I am. So also get good, knowledgeable, strong professionals around you that you can bounce ideas off of and talk about different things because even the job search process is exhausting. Like every job you interview for is not gonna be the job for you. Most of them are not gonna be the job for you. Um, but yeah, it's been an interesting transition because I went from a large tier one research institution to a small state system school. So my institution is in a state system of like 13 or 14 schools. Um, and that has its own challenges. Like we don't develop our budget. Our budget is developed by a CFO and then we are given the money that we can spend. Um, so it's just a lot of learning and a lot of growth in general. I'm glad to hear that. I still remember that dinner because we had a good time. And for, for context for those, one of the toughest decisions that you will make as a leader is letting someone go and wrestling with uh, that decision, especially when the information you have is in a gray area. And it's not just about letting somebody go. It's about, do you have that capacity to think through all of the different sides of information and weigh, weigh the complexities of a situation against what you believe, what your policy says, what your gut says, what the pressure um, of the moment says, and make the best decision possible. And when you can pull all of those pieces together and try to keep your head in the middle of that decision, I think that is a space where you know that someone has the tools of where they're ready to ascend because you've got the complexity to think yourself through one of the toughest situations that you could possibly be in. Uh, and so that's kind of where we go. But that dinner in Atlanta was just legendary because that whole experience was just good. Um, I just think the people who were there were just made the experience good too. Yeah. So what is something, Tiffany, talk to us about um, that has surprised you the most or maybe a happy moment in this this elevation? I think the happiest moment or moments is I feel like I'm in a job that was truly created for my skill set. So along with being the associate director of residence life, I also support all of the diversity, inclusion and equity initiatives of the department and the division. Um, so I spearhead a lot of the um, LGBTQ plus programming and um, we work in, we did some things for Hispanic Heritage Month. So I, I really am taking the lead with a lot of that. I also chair the department's diversity inclusion initiatives. And I'm also overall recruiting and selection for professional staff and training, which I love. Um, and when I got here that first week, I started July 6th and somebody put in a notice the following week. And then we got another notice the first week of August. So I was responsible for hiring two people, which we were able to get folks hired and in by September 20th. So that went in my wind jar that like we were as close to the beginning of the year was going to be um, starting at full staff because we also had to hire an admin as well. 
Um, so that has definitely been the happier moments of just like being able to do the things. But I also have a supervisor who's extremely supportive. So very rarely is like, no, if it's not going to cost any money, yes, is usually the answer. If I'm just like, oh, we want to hang some LGBT flies that say, LGBTQ flies that say out and proud and have people write affirming messages. And he's like, sure. And then we put it on social media. So then the D division, Dean of Students, like, oh my God, this is awesome. So I really appreciate having that. I think the biggest, the biggest realization, and I had this realization before I got into this role, just in general, like higher education puts a lot of weight on people with doctorate degrees. And they're really not, they're not like best ever decision makers that they're going to be. Like they have their own list of priorities and things that they stick to. But then it's kind of like, well, you needed a PhD to be in this position. But then when we start talking about like the numbers and assessment and like the feedback and stuff, everybody just looks confused about what we're talking about. So I think that has, it's always been surprising to me when you look at like university leadership and the folks who are, we are expected to be student centered, but I think ascending in this, into this position made me realize that like, there's really nobody like at the top, like everybody is kind of under someone. So like, even when we talk about the president, where president has to get approved from the board of trustees, the VPSA has to get approved from the president, et cetera, et cetera. So I remember feeling like at, entry at an entry level staff level saying like, well, why can't we just make a decision on this? And now that I'm in this role, I'm like, we, cause we don't make the decisions on this. These decisions have to be vetted by multiple people before we can say, hey, this is the decision that was being made. So I think that's the other like really odd thing is like my staff comes to me and is like, well, we need a decision. And I'm like, let me check with my supervisor. Like, I know what I would say, but let me make sure this is in line with what he would say. So that's also definitely been a growth piece. And also I didn't envision myself spending so much time dealing with like parents as much as I do probably more than I did as an entry-level staff person. So it's like when parents call, they're just like, Tiffany will take it because my supervisor, he's, you know, in a meeting with the dean or in a meeting with the VP, like he's doing things. So I find myself in this weird like middle of like, well, I want to talk to the person in charge. That's me. I'm the person in charge. Um, absolutely. So uh, as we wrap here, y'all, any last thoughts, commentary as we talk about Gen Z and and new roles. I just want to take Tiff. I'm so proud of you, lady. Like you, you've been uh, making making us proud, leading our uh, street team, but at the same time, just moving and shaking out here in the streets. So uh, keep doing what you're doing and and represent uh, Buffalo to the fullest. Um, you, you know that, that's the alma mater. So you got you got to hold me down up there. So, um, but I guess to to to, to wrap up. This this conversation um, is is very timely because I think you know we're we're learning a lot about not only the people who are serving but the people who we are employing and, and, and preparing to be leaders in this field if they choose to be leaders in the field and I think that's a that's a dynamic that's challenging us as leaders with in regards to how we see talent how we support talent and how we you know, encourage talent to, 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 to flourish. So um, it's, it's our responsibility to change the ways in which we think um, as organizational leaders um, in, 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 in how we see uh, talent and, and appreciate the, the gifts and the, and the abilities that they're bringing to our organizations for the time that we have them. And I think that's a dynamic that over the last 18 months, 
we, we, we saw the issue of time become a, a major factor as people are reclaiming it. People are saying, hey, my energy, my efforts, my talents, I'm going to appreciate them knowing that they may not have been appreciated in the ways in which I needed them in whatever capacity that we're serving. And I think that higher ed is not a, it is not um, omitted from that equation as well. So uh, equation. So, um, so, so I, I'm excited, but at the same time, you know, very cognizant of what, what, what work I need to do as a leader to ensure that I continuously learn my team um, and, and, and adjust my competencies in order for me to be the best leader of the, of, of the squad that I put together to serve the students that, you know, I have. That was beautiful, Curtis. My Akuhoi women in leadership, Black leadership, mentee and mentor relationship that has brought Tiffany and I much closer together this year. Um, so we talk on a regular basis um, and I too echo uh, Curtis sentiments and how proud we are of you and to be humbled to be a part of your journey um, as that is a recognizable and coveted spot um, to be a part of someone's story. And we fight over you often um, with that. So, you know, opportunity to give your flowers. We given all, all the flowers to you. Um, I think in wrapping up this conversation, you all have, has echoed, have echoed and, and spoke um, a lot this evening around leaders need to understand the skills, abilities, wants, and needs of those who are serving them. And knowing that we have to continually look to dismantle the old guard and the old way of doing things. Um, and knowing that when we talk about, it's not more so much of we welcome change. And we hear that often, but we then create barriers for change to break through. And so how do we dismantle the old guard and the old barriers of that and understanding um, folks way of executing their work, of processing um, and allowing them to do that. And then if that understanding that the future is very technology, very fluid, very responsive, feedback heavy, it might be time to sunset and so or transition because this is not going to change. I think that a lot of leaders thought, well, this is uh, certain pieces are only temporarily temporary. Um, they're not. And it's only going to continue to evolve at a much faster pace and rate. And that these um, complex Rubik's Cube, as I said a couple of episodes ago, problems are only going to be more complicated. And those that will be equipped to solve them are um, this generation that we're talking about, you know, and in tandem, you know, with the other generations in the space. So, you know, looking at those way, those keys and strategies are gonna be essentially important. I'll end with, I agree with you, Kiana, organizations, across multiple industries need to get quicker at responding to these complex issues. 
you do not have the time you thought you had before to say, let me wait this out to see where it's going. Where it's going is hell in a handbasket very, very quickly. And so I think the innovative to what does it mean to embrace innovation as an organization and as a daily practice and not as something that you do once in a while? But what does innovation look like on a daily practice and a discipline as a is as a value? As much as you want to value people and, and value diversity and inclusion, those things only work when you talk about innovating as well. And how do how does your work, what does your product, what do your services look like to serve a different uh, demographic of people and look like differently with different workers? you know, different employees on your team who are carrying out your organizational mission. And so I think that is a space that if we do not embrace, if you do not get on the road to trying to figure out what that looks like for you, your organization may cease to exist mm -hmm. or cease to be relevant mm -hmm. in the ways of which you were beforehand. So it's something simple. And I, I watched this commercial um, I think one of the mornings this past week as I was getting ready for my day and it talked about small businesses and it's, a, and there's a couple of cool small business commercials that are out and they like, who you calling small and who you calling this, who you calling that. And it this one focused around technology, the ability for a small business to have technology at their fingertips, the ability to have multiple ways folks can purchase items and that is simple of um and and it was promoting the tools you know being able to have the smart tools where they can use their phone to use apple pay because that is the way to go we praying for your android users out there um but if google play is your thing then you know good luck and go forth but the ability to be able to do that um how much further ahead will that business be in comparison to a business that may still just be cash only or you know checks you know we see that in our churches you can text to pay your offering and tithes um and instead of holding that envelope up with that we praying over ephesians you know we holding up cell phones because that's how i pay my tithes and offering you know and so we have to adopt some of those things and the folks that are bringing that to the forefront you know is this generation um and you're gonna lose talent right uh, institutions are losing talent when they show up to the on-campus and y'all still pushing um these index cards and having students write down their emergency contact information on versus or we doing we still got keys and and we, you know, in, in, in a shoebox in the back, you know, and that's how we do an inventory like that. That is not because that's the way we always did it, you know, and is not the answer anymore. It is not the answer and not the way to go. And that in 2021, when you have all of these resources, but we still doing things the way we did it in 1981, <laughs> you know, 1990 that that is not working it is not working and how is that best we talk about creating global leaders that also means those global leaders need to have professionals with global tools right and so how why are we not providing our leaders our staff with the global tools if they the expectation uh, is for them to create these global citizens
Go Listen. ahead, street team. Go ahead, street team. I'm done. I'm, I'm off a sofa. Well, it was pretty much to that point, but I think our organizations need to figure out what our product is and what we are selling because we are now at the point that we have become sales folks. Like, and I thought about it when I was gonna interview the staff to bring them in. I'm like, how do I make this position attractive to make you want to come here and like learn and do and grow and be all those things? Because I do think this idea that folks are going to school just to go to college is out of the window. Like we're gonna, our traditional college age student, it's not gonna be as big of a draft as it's gonna be, but there's gonna be a change. We're gonna see more people coming back to school even more now who have kids and have family. So what does that mean our residential um, experience looks like? Like my current institution has family college housing. You can move on to campus with two, I think it's two or three dependents and have an on-campus apartment and still do school and all those things. So what does that look like for, you know, some of our other campuses that may not offer that because they are predominantly a first year experience campus? Are they gonna continue to be able to be sustainable if the product that we are, and I say selling because that's what it is, is not um, attractive as much anymore. We're not gonna have as many people going into, you know, the sciences where we're talking like psychology. We're gonna have more accounting and business and all those folks looking for those harder skill sets. Our programs growing to the manner and supporting students is as the way in the way that they should be designed to. Well, y'all, we can continue this conversation in so many different directions, and we are coming close to the end of our time. Y'all, we always appreciate y'all listening to us and tuning in. Make sure you send your questions to tmatmpod at gmail.com, and we will see y'all when? Next time. Next time. Bye, y'all. Have a good week. Thank you, y'all.